0: And so what we've seen is that Paul had planted a church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is now. And Paul had moved on from Ephesus to continue to plant churches, to continue to strengthen and encourage churches. And he was ultimately working his way back to Jerusalem to deliver the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And so Timothy, who Paul had kind of mentored and grown in the faith, Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to help this church that went from a small household to probably a couple hundred members in a very short amount of time. And anytime there's growth that happens that quick in a church setting, there's bound to be some theological knots and some doctrinal issues that have to be unpacked. And so Paul sends Timothy there to lead and to encourage and to help this church work through their issues. And as word has made its way to Paul of some of the things that Timothy is facing, Paul in turn writes Timothy a letter to help him address some of these issues. And so one of the things that obviously made its way on Paul's radar was that there was an issue with the slave-master relationship in Ephesus. And what we know from previous teaching is this, the, the most common form of heresy that was being taught in ephesus was that the second coming had already happened and we everyone had already been set free from their sinful bodies and they were already in their resurrected bodies and so what that led to was a real strain on a slave master relationship if you're saying that you're now in your resurrected body and that every former relationship that you've known has been abolished because of the work of christ then you could see where it wouldn't take long in the slave-master relationship for that to create some issues, correct? I mean, all of a sudden, you've been owned, you've been told what to do, you've been told how to live, you've been given no freedom and no options, and all of a sudden, someone comes along and says, if you put your faith in Christ, there's a second coming that's already happened. You'll be free from this relationship, and you can do whatever you see fit to do with your life. And so Paul writes to address that, and this falls in a section where Paul has dealt with giving proper honor to both widows and elders, because the, the subtle bad teaching of the resurrected body and the resurrection having already happened was putting a strain on all social relationships and how people understood taking care of the body of Christ. And so this falls right in line with the honor that was due both proper widows and proper elders. They were to be given honor. And that same request for honor falls on both, falls primarily on the slave. What Paul doesn't mention in 1 and 2 is anything about the master other than to say if the master is a believer or not. And so he says this in 1, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own master's, as worthy of all honor. And so it is primarily the slave's responsibility to give his master honor. It is not dependent on what Paul does not say is, only if your owner is a Christian, only if your owner is a believer, only if your owner treats you well, Paul puts no qualifications on which masters deserve honor. It is the responsibility of the slaves as those who have been redeemed, who have been made new, who have been made alive in Christ. It is their responsibility to view their owners the way that God does and to give them the honor that they are due. It wasn't a, if you feel like it or if you get around to it or if, he, if it's good for a week and then the next time he treats you bad, you take the honor back. It was a perfect ongoing sense of honor given to your master. And so Paul says, this is not dependent on them. It is solely dependent on you as a follower of Christ, that you would be so intentional about the gospel that you would honor your master, which makes no sense. I mean, could you imagine if you were in the, the slave quarters back then? I'm sure it was never a lot of people got together to really praise their master. Like, oh, man, he whipped me so good. I'm so glad that he is so hard on me today. A lot of the conversation that was happening with those people was to degrade and to bring down and to bash and to demean their owners who were demeaning them. And it was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And what Paul says is, if you're a slave and you are a believer, you lose the right because of what Christ has done for you to complain about your owner. You set a new tone. You take where you are, and through the lens of the gospel, you give honor to your owner and to your master in a way that those who don't know Christ would recognize a difference in you. And also, your master would recognize a difference in you. And so he says, you give them honor. Why give them honor? He goes on to answer his own question. He says, so that the name of God... And the teaching may not be reviled. And so, for Paul, primarily the honor that slaves gave to their masters was a gospel issue. It was not primarily a social issue or a political issue or a Gentile or a Jew issue. The issue regarding honor of slaves to their masters for Paul was a gospel issue. Everything that these slaves proclaimed had to be validated in a sense by the way that they chose to live their lives in a slave master relationship. And so the primary focus before the slave in his interaction with his owner was the honor of God's name was that the name of God and the teaching or the gospel would not be reviled or slandered or blasphemed or taken lightly or thought to be something that really didn't affect at the core who these people were. And so Paul's challenge to the slaves is you can't be a slave and pay lip service to the gospel and the gospel have any effect on those that you're serving. If you're going to serve the gospel first and foremost, it will directly affect the way that you serve your master. And if you want to say that you adhere to the gospel and you're going to speak in a way that denies the gospel, the problem then is not with the gospel and the problem is not with the name of God or God's teaching and God and his salvation through Christ. The problem primarily is still in the hardened heart of the slave. And so it is his job as a carrier and an ambassador and a son or a daughter of the king to make sure that the name of God and the teaching could not be reviled, that they would set themselves up in such a way that the masters and fellow slaves could not deny or did not have an easy way to attack and discredit what they claim to be the life-giving, soul-satisfying grace of Jesus. And so that was their primary focus. And he goes on to say, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul goes, and also, this is also really important, slaves, if your owner is a believer, don't dog it working for him. Don't use your relationship as brothers in Christ to give yourself loopholes and ways out of serving well. If anything, if your owner is a believer who still chooses to own you, you serve him all the better because he's your brother in Christ. And as he is successful and as his business or his household grows, the gospel can advance. That would be foreign teaching to slaves ears in first century Jerusalem. And in Ephesus, that completely turns everything they've known about how they interact and how they serve upside down. It completely changes their outlook on what it is to live and to serve someone well. And so Paul says, listen, just because you may sit at the back of the same church they're attending on a Sunday, and you may sing the same songs, and you may gather around the table together to take the bread and to take the wine— Do not use that as an excuse to shortchange or to cheapen your labor or to pull back from your responsibilities to your owner. Use that as motivation and as an impetus to work that much harder. Because you know as he advances, if if your owner takes the gospel seriously and if he's about the business of God, then as you work to serve him well and he advances and his business and household grows, then the outflow of that is that the gospel goes beyond just your house, beyond just your farm. There's money to give to the saints in Jerusalem. There's money to support missionaries going out. And so Paul says, don't take your owner being a believer as a license to work less for your master or less for the gospel. Because the same thing hangs in the balance whether your owner's a believer or not. You've got to go back to the clause that separates the two verses and the two descriptions of the owners. The same thing applies here. The aim for Paul is still a gospel issue. It's the gospel issue of, giving their, of letting there be no reason for the name of, or for the teaching of Christ and of the gospel to be reviled. That is, that is the issue that overshadows everything else that Paul's teaching for the elders, for the widows. Everything Paul lays out as far as right Christian living deals with and keeps at its forefront this, this challenge for us that the gospel and the name of God would not be reviled by unbelievers. And that is the same weight that we bear today as followers of Christ. It is our responsibility. It is the weight falls on us to make sure as we live this thing out that we give outsiders and those who aren't believers no excuse to revile the name of Jesus, the name of God, or the gospel that we proclaim. And so this 1 Timothy isn't the only place Paul lays out for us. A slave owner relationship if you 've got your Bibles and you flip over we'll go to ephesians first ephesians chapter six it 's verses five through nine Paul says this same same context this is this is to the same church Timothy is currently at. This is to the church of Ephesus Paul writing says this. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And in Colossians, which is a similar Geographical region. Paul writes again and again. He has to address this very subversive teaching that the resurrection has already happened. And so, in Colossians three twenty-two through four one, he says this: Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so Paul writes in other, to other churches in other settings and situations Ephesians being to the same church. And he addresses that the main focus is not just to get people to see in a passing glance that you take your work seriously, but it is a heart issue that we serve our masters and we, you serve those who own you and those who give you your orders. You serve them from the heart. And so Paul's main goal for the slaves in the first century world was not necessarily to seek their freedom. If they could obtain their freedom, by all means, obtain it. But so much of what we read in the New Testament is not how to get out of suffering. So much of what Paul writes and so much of what colors Paul's lenses for understanding the application of the New Testament and the gospel in a believer's life is not primarily how to escape suffering, but how to go through the suffering well so that Christ will be made much of so that in the points where it makes the least sense for you to be on your knees, worshiping and praising God and pouring your heart out to him and serving someone who owns you and can beat you for no reason that when you live the gospel out there, when you live the gospel out in a suffering context, the gospel carries a weight that it does not carry when you are the owner or when you are not in the position of suffering. And so, so many times while when Paul writes about slavery, he does not write about ways to throw off slavery because it would take so many people from a prime position to make a difference for the gospel. He instead writes to encourage them of how to endure slavery well for the sake of Christ's name and the gospel. And so he doesn't give them easy ways out. Instead, he presses on them that they would take the gospel serious, that they would throw their lives on the mercy and grace and strength of Jesus to serve their masters well for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of their freedom, not for the sake of making their master look bad, but for the sake of making Jesus look great and for the sake of having a grounds to share the gospel with their fellow slaves and with their owners. And so I wish I could say amen and let you guys go, but I can't. Because here's the deal. This is so rich in application for us. This is so rich in application, and we read the word slave, and we immediately think, Well, I'm not a slave, so I'm good. All right, next. What's next? Let's see, false teachers and true contentment. I can do true contentment, but I don't don't own people, I don't think. Maybe, well, I'm not even going to try to make a joke because that would just go bad. Um, Yeah, you can't make a lot of jokes about slavery when you're teaching on it. It just doesn't end well. Um, Most of us don't live in this context on a one-to-one basis. But most of us have... A job and most of us have bosses or some of us are the bosses and so the the question really that we've got to answer is in your place of business or in your home or in your school are you giving people easy ways to revile the name of God in the teaching of the gospel Are there, are there times in the day where when, when you live this out, you give everyone around you an easy way, almost too easy of a way out to discredit the gospel and not take your invitation for coffee or lunch or church or to have people over for dinner to get in a gospel conversation with them. Do you end those conversations before they can even happen because you don't take work serious enough? Because if you If you have a job, and we're going to camp on workers for just a minute. If you are a worker or you are a business owner, this applies to all of us. Your boss may or may not be a believer. Your boss may or may not care that you're involved in life groups or that you come to church on Sundays or that you want to go on mission trips or you want to leave the company in a few years to go give your life to something else. Your boss may not care one bit about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But just like Paul wrote to the slaves in Ephesus, the question remains, are you giving your boss the honor they deserve because they're your boss? Because that's the litmus test for if they get honor. That's the litmus test for how much you take the gospel serious is do you honor the people that are in authority over you in the workplace today? Or do you give ample opportunities for the gospel and the name of God to be discredited because of the way you choose to interact in the workplace? Paul's teaching completely obliterates in 6, 1, and 2. He completely wipes out the sacred-secular divide. It is done with. You no longer can say, this is church life, this is work life. They're completely independent of each other. That distinction dies with Christ. And when he raises again, you completely lose the ability for yourself to make the distinction that this is a secular issue and this is a gospel issue. All of life becomes a gospel issue for us. And most of us spend more time in a job than we do anywhere else on any given week. We spend time with bosses, with people who are in charge of us, or if you're a business owner or a manager, you spend time with people that you are in charge of. And we have to answer the question for ourselves of how easy am I making it for people to discredit the name of God and the gospel? And the first way we do that is by not honoring those who are in a position of authority over us. Paul doesn't say you get to make the call. He says if they're in authority, they get honor. And so in your work or in your school or in your home, is honor being given where honors do? Is honor being given in your family to mom and dad so that when you're out with your kids, the people that see you in the mall and in Walmart, God forbid, and in Target, Walmart will make people doubt your salvation anyway, but... <laughs> if you take your family there, but when you're out in those settings, is there honor given to mom and dad from the kids that negates the ability for people to poke holes in the gospel? Is there honor given between husband and wife so that the kids in your home want to obey mom and dad? In your school, do you give honor to your professors and those that teach you and even the grad assistants? Is there honor given to them in such a way that your classmates cannot poke or find easy ways out of taking the gospel message seriously? Because they're in a position of authority and God is in control of all things and God has placed them there, then regardless of their worldview or their thoughts or their actions, they deserve honor. That does not mean, so that you don't misunderstand, that does not mean if they ask you to partake in a sinful act that you then partake in the sinful act. I would hope, I don't want anybody to misunderstand that this becomes just a blanket. Do what they say with no regard for anything. If it's a sin issue, obviously, don't do the sin. That's not honor, that's a double dishonor. You dishonor them by not standing up for the gospel, and you dishonor the gospel in your own life by disobeying the gospel. So, where there's a sin issue, Yes, don't do that, please. But for the most part, we, our bosses, our co-workers, everyone deserves honor. Because Christ taught that we consider ourselves the slaves of all and the servants of all. And he goes on to say in verse 2 that those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. When we show up in whatever context we work in the day, our primary goal is to work with a heart that is bent on making much of Jesus. But the times and the places you will see more people take shortcuts, do poor quality work, and completely sandbag or cheat on their bosses is when the boss is a believer. Believer. It is almost across the board that is the easiest way to abuse both your boss or your manager or the people that you serve. It's the easiest way to abuse them and the gospel of Jesus. is to know that they know that the gospel is real and true and to then use the grace that they know that they would extend to you as a license to do very poor work. And it is most prevalent in churches and ministries. Most churches and ministries, they have people that get in there who get a job to do and they sandbag it because it's for Jesus. And if I don't get it done, well, Jesus can use junk to reach people, blah, blah, blah. he doesn't care about me. I'm just this, whatever. God cares about the work that you do because the work that you do helps validate the message that you're preaching out of your mouth every day when you go in and you start to share about what Jesus has done in your life. And I know we would like to say, well, don't look at my life. I'm just, I sin all the, yeah, we all sin all the time. And we all want the the easy way out for us that says, don't look at my life, just listen to what I say. Don't, don't judge me too harshly because I'm just a sinner who's messed up and I still sin. And what we do when we use those words and those phrases with our coworkers is we say, please don't take the gospel too seriously because I'm not taking it serious in my own life. Because if I was, I would stop doing what it is that you're seeing me doing that I'm having to place the caveat before that says, don't watch me too close in this area. Don't watch me right here. Look, everything else I say and do, I want you to be on board with, but I'm never going to just do what my boss tells me to do. So when I come to you to gossip or when I come to you to badmouth the boss, listen to me, please, but don't judge me as a believer then. Just, I'll call a timeout on being a believer. You let me vent. Then when we get back to it, then you can take me serious. You can take me in the gospel serious again. Very true, very complicated. We always want to work to set ourselves up to have the easy way out. And what Paul writes and what God forces us into is to not take the easy way out, but to take the hard way through every day, waking up and working to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I know is true of me, and I would imagine it's true of most of you to the degree that I'm willing to abandon responsibility or cut corners or to slack or to not apply myself the way I should at work with an earthly master who gives me things to do is a direct mirror or window into my heart to how quick I will take my earthly, my heavenly master who's not seen and how quick I will abdicate responsibility to God, how quick I will cut corners concerning the gospel, how quick I will make a way for me to not submit fully to God. And the most telling way to see that is how you respond to those who are in authority over you at work. Your ability to love them well and to serve them well helps validate the gospel that you're preaching and that you're talking about and that you want to engage them in. And this is hard work. And I think why so few of us really engage in this seriously on a day-to-day basis is because we're still trying to live the gospel out of our own strength. And we wear out at playing a game. And so we get tired and we say, I just, I wish I could take a day off. I wish I, I wish just once that they would, that people would not look at my life and try to make a judgment call on the gospel. I'm just so, most of the time, the reason we pull back is because we are still trying to either save ourselves or live out the gospel from our own strength. And your strength and your ability to muster up a good effort for the gospel will always fall short. It is as we grow into the gospel and as we understand the gospel and we let the power of Christ work from inside out in us that we find the strength to keep going day after day after day after day into an office or into an environment that's hostile to the faith and continue to make a difference in people's lives so that they if God would be willing he would shed his grace in their heart he would awaken them to the gospel of Jesus Christ and we would have a front row seat to watch him move and work in their lives to redeem them and make them his son or his daughter and so the, the bad news for us is we don't get a day off we don't get a day where we can just dog it in regards to the faith where we can just say well it's not a big deal today every day from now until you take your last breath on this earth the gospel is a big deal And the gospel affects everything because other people's eternities hang in the balance. So please don't be selfish with the gospel and think that you deserve a day off. If you take a day off, you're saying that in that day, whoever you cross paths with, it is not important that they hear about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And that makes you directly opposed to what God wants to see happen. So we get no days off, we get no vacation, we get no time away. And so what that means for us as a body, where integrity embraces this, is that we gospel each other well, that we encourage each other, That when you're together in a home for dinner or with a small group of friends from integrity, it doesn't become a license to blow off steam for words and phrases and actions you would never do in public. That's not gospeling each other well, that is setting each other up for a colossal failure in the workplace and in our homes. If we get together and we think that we can give each other the license to take time off, that same license will be taken around non-Christians and the whole thing is lost. We completely invalidate everything we're doing. Now, does that mean that if Integrity Church gets together in small groups that you get an old Baptist hymnal out and you just sit around and sing just as I am? No, we still have fun. We still enjoy life. I'm not saying that you go home and burn all your rock CDs or don't go see any more rated R movies or not have a good cold beer, praise God. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that when we're together, we, we've, got, we've got to tighten up the reins on letting our brothers and sisters have moments where they. what we need to do when they head down that road is ask how we can pray for them. Don't encourage the sin knowing that they're forgiven. That's abuse of grace at its highest form. And it breaks God's heart that the body that would gather in here today and sing praises and take communion as a family and hear the word preached would then get together and like we're behind God's back go, hey, it's okay, do whatever you want to do. We'll forgive you. And we flaunt our sin in God's face and say we need a break. And what Paul says is in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, you don't get a break. You don't. You cannot take a break. Because the minute you take a break, you're going to revert to sin. You're not going to revert to godliness and holiness. If you don't believe me, try taking some time off from being intentional about the gospel. You don't walk around talking about Jesus. This is an every day, every moment deal for us to take the gospel seriously. And especially, especially when we work We owe it to the people we work with to validate the message we proclaim by the way that we perform our work and by the way that we attend school. So, school-age people, if you're here and you're in college or, or grad school situation or you're in high school or middle school or elementary school, you don't have to wait until you're grown up with a job for this to apply. If you're in college, honor your teachers. Be in your seat on time. Do your homework. Turn it in. Study. Show up at your job on time, even if you're a part-time college worker. Show up on time, and in the time that you have, do the best work that you can so that the gospel could land in your workplace. Quit saying, well, I pay for this school, so it doesn't matter. I can show up when I want to. It's my money. Fair enough. But it's the gospel of Jesus that you're completely destroying. Waste your money however you want to waste it. Don't waste the gospel. So if you're a student and you are enrolled in school, please show up on time and honor your teachers. Please respect them. You have so many people around you from the ages of 15 to 25 who are looking for every excuse possible to not take the gospel serious. And if you're between 15 and 25 or 26, and you're a believer, and you're in school, you've got a great chance to reach a great number of people with the gospel. Don't waste it by trying to fit in or be cool. I know those pressures are there. I know that it's tough to navigate. Parents, Help your children be different. Don't give your children an excuse to take a day off. Disciple them well. Gospel your children well. Gospel your family well. All of life. If we, if we back up just off of work and off of school, and we back up and we take all of life into consideration, all of life is service. All of life is service. In marriage, husbands serve wives. Wives serve husbands. We seek the betterment of our wife or our husband in the gospel. And so we serve in that capacity. We serve in family life and in parenting. We serve our kids well by teaching them the gospel, by helping them grow in the gospel, by encouraging them in the gospel so that they would grow up to become men and women who love the gospel and who love Jesus and who take the gospel seriously when they go out and they go to school or they go to work and when they get married themselves and they have their own family. You set the tone now, parents, for how your kids will engage in the gospel going forward. Growing up, kids, if you're in here, look, it starts now. You're, you serve your parents by obeying them. You serve your parents well by not being an excuse maker or a complainer. But when your parents ask you to do things, you do those things well and with excellence that would honor God. Because maybe you're here, and maybe when you go home to your parents after this, or when you travel back from Greenville home, and if your parents are still alive, you're still a child. You may have your own children, but you're still a child. All of us, if we still have our parents, serve your parents well so that if they're not believers, they would have no excuse to not take the gospel seriously. So as we grow up and as we continue to grow up, we will continue to honor our parents well. And in the workplace, we honor those that are either our bosses by the way we serve, or if we're in the position of being the boss or the manager, we honor our workers by serving them well, by seeing them advance and grow and thrive in the business setting so that they would take the message of the gospel seriously. True servitude is Christ-centered, leads us to Christ, and makes us like Christ. True servitude is Christ-centered, leads us to Christ, and makes us like Christ. And that is worshipful, gratitude for the ability to serve well. And so if your service falls in any other place other than being Christ-centered, leading people to Christ and yourself to Christ and making you like Christ, if your motive or aim for serving is anything else, then this morning take inventory of that. Take inventory of what really has your heart captivated Because whatever direction you're headed in your service, whatever you're trying to achieve through serving, if it doesn't line up with Christ, in the end, it's not really worth pursuing if Christ doesn't lead the pursuit in that direction. And it will not be a worshipful servitude that we engage in. It will be a very, very, very anti-gospel service that we engage in. We serve a master who by grace has already served us as a slave. And so you may not think your job is worth it. You may not think school is worth it or your spouse or your kids or your family. What makes this possible, why we even get together to talk about a slave mentality or a servant mentality is because we've already been served by the most undeserving slave there ever was in Christ. And so when you serve, when you serve family, when you serve friends, when you serve coworkers, you have a high priest in Christ. You have a brother in Christ who understands what you're going through because he has served. He has given of himself. He has sought not only to make people, but he, he made dead people alive. And so we serve not a master who cannot identify with us as a servant. We serve a master who's already humbled himself to be a servant. And that gives us great joy in service. That gives us great worship in our service. And so with all that together, read First Timothy 6, 1 through 2 again. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves or servants